Good afternoon, everybody. I am honored and privileged to be the moderator of this panel on women in defense, embracing the challenges and the opportunities. We have a distinguished panel here. Um, these are women who've had successful careers in the military, continue to have successful careers in the military, and uh, I think they're gonna be uh, delightful just to hear their perspectives, their experiences, uh, but also talk about what it took to be successful, but also talk about what maybe perhaps are some of the barriers still yet to be done for being successful in the military. So with no further ado, let me introduce our panelists. So our first panelist is Vice Admiral Retired Nancy Brown, who most recently served as the Director of the Command Control Communications and Computer Systems at the Joint Staff. Um, while in the Navy, Nancy had uh, two tours in the White House, she also served as the senior most executive for communications um, in Iraq uh, for the multinational force. And she also served as a senior communications officer at US Northcom. Our second panelist, Paula Broadwell, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, All In, The Education of General David Petraeus. Paula is a West Point graduate. She also was a professor at West Point and has served for over 15 years in the intelligence the counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations. Paula is currently a US Army reservist, and she has assignments in the intelligence community, in the Special Operational Forces, and an FBI Joint uh, Task Force. Uh, by the way, she's also currently finishing her PhD from Harvard and King's College. And our third panelist, uh, Lieutenant General Mary Legere, currently serving as the G2 of the Army, uh, which is the most senior position for an intel officer period in the department. She's responsible for the policy formation, the planning, programming, budgeting, and supervision of our entire intel um, operations. Now prior to this assignment, uh, General Legere also was the most senior military woman for intelligence in uh, Iraq uh, for the multinational force as well. And then before that, she also was the commanding general of the Army's Intelligence and Security Command at ENSCOM. So welcome panelists, this is gonna be a great panel. Um, I'd like to make a comment, though, before we, we get into our discussions about highlighting um, the women's and women's success in the military. Women are an integral part today in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. And in fact, women consist of about 15% of our military forces. And over the last 10 years, over 282,000 women have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and 20,000 still remain in both countries. Um, beside the deployment and, and the percentages, what we'll talk about a little bit on our panel, is women actually are serving in key leadership roles. Uh, for example, the Army has a four-star general, General Ann Dunwoody, who commands the Army Materiel Command. And the Senate just announced the very first four-star for the Air Force, and that is um, General Janet Wolfenbauer, who will be commanding the U.S. Air Force Materiel Command. Um, but throughout the military, not just the senior ranks, women are playing integral roles. Today, women are uh, fighter pilots in the Air Force. They're serving on surface uh, ships. They're serving in submarines in the Navy. And of course, they're serving in the Army in some critical roles. Um, but about a month ago, which is kind of what prompted this panel, the Department of Defense um, rescinded a policy, a 1994 policy, that prohibited women from serving in units uh, below the brigade level. And that meant those units that were actually in direct combat. So the policy, what it's done, is been able to open up positions um, to do that. Now why? Well, I think what we've learned over the last 10 years is we're not fighting linear battle, battles anymore. In fact, it's very difficult to understand what the front line is 
compared to the rear line. In fact, there probably is no distinguishing between the rear and the front lines. So this 360 of being immersed in combat, women have been experiencing. Not only that, they have been performing and been an integral part of operations uh, in theater for the last 10 years. So with that context setting, um, the fact that the Army is opening up 14,000 new positions now that women can serve in. Um, with this comes opportunity, but there's still um, positions that aren't available to women, such as those in the infantry, in the armor, uh, as in well as some combat engineer and special forces. So um, what I'd like to do is now, with that context, talk about the opportunities here for women. And uh, with that, ask our panel members to talk about uh, their careers, what made them successful, and discuss what opportunities they see for women uh, in the future, and perhaps if any barriers that need to be lowered to facilitate continued success for women in the military. So Admiral Brown, would you like starting off for us? Of course, I'd love to. And uh, looking out at the audience here, I can tell that uh, aside from my husband, I'm probably the oldest one in the room. <laughs> so I, when I came in the military, I think it's, it's uh, a little bit of... <laughs> well, I always have to have him here so I have someone in the audience I can pick on. Um, uh, but I think, you know, setting the context for when I did come into the military and what the uh, climate, the social climate in the United States was like, because I came into the Navy in the very early 70s. And, you know, the 70s was a decade of change. Uh, it was a social revolution. There was anti-war sentiment. It was the women's movement was just beginning. There were racial issues. There was a drug culture. Um, it was anti-military, really. There were four students killed on the Kent State campus by the National Guard. Um, so a lot of things happening in the 70s, and one of the big things that happened was the end of the draft and the beginning of an all-volunteer force. So I actually came into the Navy as one of the first people, women, one of the first women to come in uh, as an all, in an all-volunteer force. And I went to officer candidate school, and uh, which had just been integrated. They had just done away with women's officer candidate school and there was one school for all of us. We lived in the same building. Uh, we went to classes together, we ate together, we did everything together. And quite honestly, it didn't seem unusual to me. Um, but uh, there were still a lot of areas that were closed job-wise uh, for women. Uh, there were no women admirals when I came into the service. They had just opened up an opportunity for command ashore. Um, promotions had just been equalized. Uh, women were not at sea. They could not be assigned to any unit that deployed. So there were a lot of restrictions. Um, and because of when I came in and the length of time I stayed, um, I saw most of the changes, really all of the changes that have taken place. And it's been a really wonderful experience to consider that I was part of those changes. Um, in uh, 75, the academies were open to women. In 78, 
the Navy started assigning women to non-combatant ships. Now really what that meant is they didn't deploy, they didn't go to sea, they stayed tied up at the pier, but it was a ship. And women were assigned. Um, in, then it took another 15 years, it wasn't until 93, that the combat exclusion law was lifted as far as the Navy was concerned. There were still restrictions for the Army and the Marine Corps, but the way combat was defined in the law meant that women could go on board combat vessels. And so women started being assigned to uh, aircraft squadrons and uh, ships that were actually considered combatants. So I've seen all of that. I saw how the Navy did the integration, not very well at first. Uh, I've seen how they're doing the submarines, very much improved. They've really structured integration of women on subs to be successful. I would say when women went to sea for the first time, it was structured so they would fail, but they did not. They did succeed, they proved themselves. And I think it's remarkable the progress that we've made, even though it's been slow at some points. And I would hope that the military of tomorrow will be one where success is not based on gender and service is not defined by gender, but by the willingness to serve and the ability to perform the job requirements at the time. And I think that's where we're headed, and I'm very positive about the direction that all the services are going in, and I think it's very promising for young women. Uh, the opportunities will be limitless for them in the military. For me, I could have never had the opportunities, the challenges, any, in any other field uh, outside the military. And I thank um, the luck that drew, drew me to the military, and, I, and I'm grateful for every day that I was allowed to wear that uniform. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Paula, your thoughts. Tough act to follow, man. <laughs> um, I had a little different experience because I came in in the 90s and because of trailblazers like both of you, all three of you, um, I didn't even think about being a woman in the military. I just thought, I like their motto, be all you can be. I think I'm going to go for that. Mm -hmm. um, and it all happened because I was watching the Gulf War, the first Gulf War unfold on television. And I originally had wanted to go into diplomacy and international relations. And I thought as a woman in that field, if I can understand the military, that instrument of power, I'll be so much more empowered. Um, and long story short, I ended up at, at West Point, um, which was a very formative experience. And um, I learned a lot of great lessons, and it shaped my dedication to serving my country, for sure. My first assignment was in Korea. And I remember arriving and being sent straight to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Um, my whole unit was up there already. And I thought, I have to impress them. You know, they're in the, they're in the field. They're on the front lines of war, really, because there wasn't much going on in 1995, 96. And I remember the first night, um, we, were, we were out in the field. And my platoon sergeant woke me up about an hour after falling asleep. He said, ma'am, look up. What do you see? And I kind of rustle out of my sleep. And I look up, and I, I see stars, platoon sergeant, and thinking, like, what is he trying to get from me? And he said, well, what does it tell you? And I'm still thinking, I'm this young second lieutenant. I have to impress him and show some keen intellect. I'm a West Point grad. So I said, platoon sergeant, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of stars and potentially other universes out there. 
No comment. I said, theologically, it tells me God is great and we are but insignificant in this universe. No comment. And then I said, meteorologically, it tells me we're going to have a great day for training tomorrow. Is that what he was looking for? No comment. I said, platoon sergeant, what does it tell you? He said, ma'am, someone stole our tent. <laughs> so I have decided never to try to be profound or show keen intellect ever again. Um, but that was a very formative experience, and, and he put me in my place. Um, I have had so much fun being an intelligence officer. I'm sure you'll say the same, but I've, I've served in several different disciplines. The first was electronic warfare, so we were jamming North Korean communications. And then I moved to Europe. and was Hypothetically. A, hypothetically, if it <laughs> That would be it was all training. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We're in a state of armistice. You're okay. Okay. <laughs> Security clearance. Um, then I moved to Europe and to Germany. I was, as a second lieutenant, the senior Middle East Africa analyst, which was great responsibility for a young officer to be uh, to dive in and have that responsibility to represent um, or to to basically brief the head. U.S. Army officer in Europe about um, some of the civil military engagements that were going on in all of Africa and portions of the Middle East, and was able to travel quite a bit to Africa and the Middle East and Europe, um, so fun times but um, rewarding uh, professionally as well. I served in Bosnia. Um, I served as a S2 of the largest MP battalion in the world, military police battalion, and at some point I felt like I wasn't being challenged. Um, and I was about to get married, and my husband and I decided we were we were both being sent to different uh, conflicts. I was in Croatia, he was in Bosnia, then I was in Bosnia, and he was in Greece, and we were having a difficult time thinking about starting a family. So I wasn't challenged professionally. I was having a difficult time personally with, you know, how do I reconcile the military of my future husband, and decided to leave active duty. Um, I moved back to the U.S., and a month later, 9-11 happened, and I got a, a phone call a week later, and I was involuntarily recalled. But it was a true blessing in disguise because I was assigned to Special Operations Command. And at heart, I'm a true tomboy. So it was really fun to be in that, that community. Um, I think all of the military was transforming them, but the mission was very real. And as an analyst um, and a targeteer, so I was putting together packages for some people we may target. People we wanted to For training. It was training. people we wanted to meet. We wanted to meet. <laughs> Impact. Yes. <laughs> we weren't sure that we wanted to know Mom. We just wanted yeah, to meet him. Sure. <laughs> He's doing good. <laughs> she still has the clearance, by the way. And I'm, I'm, I'm the person that decides whether she keeps it. So she's a little more nervous. Okay, for sure. I think my cell phone's ringing. <laughs> You're doing great. Yeah. Anyway, that was really fun, and I can't tell you anything more. i got to kill you. But um, uh, I was recalled again right after that and assigned to an FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. And I enjoyed being recalled. My husband didn't so much. But again, the mission was very real. Um, my skills were needed. And it was fantastic professionally to work in an interagency environment and understand why things were so screwed up before 9-11. And not that they're that much better now. Uh, the Denver Joint Terrorism Task Force. So we lived in, in Denver for four years. And then I was reassigned there as well. And I was doing uh, human operations. Um, now I'm assigned as a reserve instructor at West Point, which is a very different field. And all of it's been very rewarding um, to be twice a citizen in the reserves. It's been, uh, it's been uh, a privilege to continue to serve. I've questioned whether I should get out or not because it, 
it requires a lot of your time and energy to stay active in the reserves and to do all the correspondence work and to take another two weeks away from my children and, and go serve wherever I'm supposed to serve. Um, but it's been so rewarding and I hope I can stay in. Um, I'll stop there as far as my profession is concerned. But one thing I'd like to say, based on your introduction of our group, I was the one who asked that question yesterday. And to your point about what are the barriers that still exist, um, I really think it's interesting that of in our society the military is one institution that does prevent women right now from getting to the very top and ostensibly someone like um, General Dunwoody who's retiring now she, mm -hmm. I think she just retired could have possibly been chief of staff of the army or chairman of the joint chiefs of staff but but I don't think so Not, um, I hope and believe it's in our future but I think we have to prepare women for those positions at the at the bottom level, at the operational level, and then of course at the strategic level. I don't see there's any reason why a woman couldn't be a regional commander, a central command commander, maybe the difficulties of dealing with Arab states, but um, I, uh, I'm thankful to hear that a lot of our top brass, men and women, are thinking about ways to create more opportunities for women. Yes, and we'll talk about that. I think that's a great point. So, Okay, um, well, I noticed some similarities. Um, but anyway, I'm Mary Lachere, and I think I come in the middle, um, a little bit uh, younger than you and a lot older than you. So, uh, but I, uh, you know, just a little bit of my background, I was in a, I grew up in a family of five children. There were four brothers, um, and so, uh, and, and raised by two parents who absolutely had no gender, uh, there was no specifics on gender. They just uh, asked, gave the task to the kid that responded the most, that would be me. Uh, so I got all the tasks, but I think I grew up in a household where uh, my mother and father both uh, just sort of put out that message that you should go after whatever it is you think you want to do. So I think from the beginning I was a little confused. I thought I could be a priest when I was five. I, I explained, they, they explained to me that's combat coded. Um, so I, they said, you could be a nun. And I said, no, I couldn't wear those shoes. Uh, so then I wanted to be the third baseman for the Red Sox. And I understood that would be difficult because this was before we had Little League for, for girls. I miss it by a year. Um, so sports writer maybe, but eventually. Um, what I really, I was voted most likely to take over a third world country. So if you have an idea <laughs> that, as, as, a, as a, exactly. So as a woman, I was, I made that note as, as a young, young lady who I guessed often was called upon to take charge of my brothers. Um, I literally arrived in grammar school wanting to organize things and thinking that was a perfectly natural place to be. Paula and I were talking, we were all talking before, uh, before one of the lectures started and Paula, as a good West Point instructor should, went to the front of the room, which is exactly where I sat all the time <laughs> because I thought that was important. Um, but I thought about not a career in the military, but in the same way I was interested in the world. And I really thought if I was going to be given responsibility for a third world country that I should understand not only diplomacy, but the military as well. So I went to the University of New Hampshire uh, as a basketball player. Um, discovered that I was a Division three basketball player at a Division one school, uh, but I didn't discover that <laughs> soon enough. Uh, and was a political science major, sort of interested potentially in foreign service, um, and um, just thought I would, I, I didn't really want to go to business school, but I wanted to learn about leadership, so I really tried, went over to the ROTC uh, the unit and signed up for some courses and just sort of began um, you know, just to, just, just to try that out and found myself in a place where not only you got leadership development, but there were all sorts of opportunities when I graduated from school that sounded very intriguing. And I locked on the idea that I really wanted to be a military intelligence officer. So from the start, at 19 years old, I had a pretty 
clear idea of what right would look like. I didn't know if it would be a career, but I really wanted the experience. Um, and as you know, we are asked to select choices uh, when we get our commission. We're asked to list choices, just like at West Point. I'm sure you finished high enough in the class that you were assured your choice, but you have to have uh, a variety of choices. And military intelligence was the only choice I wanted, but it's also one of the most sought after branches. Uh, and then I had to pick four others, including a couple combat arms branches. And I really didn't want them, but you know, the rules are rules. So I went and looked at the colors of the branches and I thought, well, Signal's a good branch, but it's orange, and that won't go with my hair. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> MP green, like that. So in any event, I, I really worked as hard as I possibly could to land where I needed to land, just as Paula did, so that I could become, come into the Army, not just as an Army officer, which really excited me, uh, but so that I could begin my career as an intelligence officer. Uh, because I had an idea then, um, although I didn't really understand it, that this is something I might want to do f my whole life. And I just got very lucky that the military, military gave, gave me the first 20 years uh, for a career that could last till I'm, you know, till I'm dead. Uh, it's worked out a little bit differently than that, but I, I really am one of those people that, um, you have to know that in third grade I filled out all my college course selections for four years <laughs> with my father uh, so that I could figure out how to do a, do a dual major in, in four years, so I am that kind of person. Um, I went to Germany, and so I'll, I'll hit a few things that might surprise you and they'll, they'll, they'll lend you to the, the uh, discussion of combat coding. I was a CNJ platoon leader, a collection and jamming platoon leader with the same SIGIN equipment that you had years later, probably some stuff that we handed down. And as a young, young lieutenant, I was aware of the fact that women were not supposed to be in combat units, and yet I found myself immediately assigned or attached to an infantry brigade and right up against the border. And I wondered to myself, do they realize where this equipment has to be placed? The Soviets are right there, the East Germans are right there, and the only thing between my high hillside and them might be some engineers in a smoke platoon. So this idea that the women were in the rear at any point started to not make sense to my 21-year-old intellect. But then, because I paid attention in the basic course, unlike many of my classmates, I also realized that Soviet doctrine called upon uh, their, their way of war was to insert, as they had with every other conflict, into the rear areas to create a 360 environment to take pressure off the, the front, the, 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 the close fight. And so I wondered if the Army was aware of that as a second lieutenant, and I was troubled and I was quite certain that someone out there realized, and I, I thought, well, if no one's gonna tell them, I'm not gonna tell them, because I'm not uncomfortable being next to the engineers. I did have a very astute young you know, linguist, Czech, Czech linguist who was 19 years old, and she really wanted to be assigned to a strategic SIGINT unit at the field station, but she found herself in this collection and jamming platoon of men and women attached to an infantry in this point, in this exercise, a cavalry regiment. And she said, ma'am, aren't they aware that I'm not supposed to be up here according to the rules? And I said, I really think they are. It just may be something they're overlooking, but it was a data point. Um, I didn't really understand whether uh, being in a, being in MI but having these restrictions was going to have any effect on my career at all from the start because I was sort of oblivious. Until I, I, I went from Germany to, to Korea where I got a chance to be a company commander and I was sort of following the same track as my husband who was an engineer. We were sort of getting all the same jobs just in different units. I was in gender mixed units. 
which would routinely attach themselves to all male units, and it wasn't really that big a deal. Uh, I was finding myself bumping into signal officers and logisticians and, and you know, some of the very, very best MPs and men and women units, and we were assigned to these very, very up close and personal tactical all-male units. And it was only a surprise to the all-male units when we would show up, but we'd say, hello, here's your fuel, or I'm your intelligence officer. The enemy would be that way, and life would go on. Um, and we dealt with male and female issues inside these units the way all units deal with their issues. You deal with them and you move on because you have a mission to do. It wasn't until I was a captain and had been a company commander and I think was at about the same point in your timeline where you begin to realize I'm getting a little serious about this career. I mean up to this point I'm heading to my third world country and I'm developing <laughs> you know a resume but at this point uh, is the first time I ran into a job that I wanted that by the rules I couldn't have uh -huh. and I was upset about that. I, I was a good intelligence officer. I had been very successful, and I arrived in a division, and I did what, hap what happened to me, what happened to a lot of females, is I was put, I had already been a commander, so I wasn't going to the MI unit. I was going to be on the division staff, and I was going to be on there for a while, because down in the brigades, which were excluded from having intelligence officers who were women at that point, even at the brigade level, they, there, were, there were men down there who had been down there for two and three years that couldn't get into the MI battalion to get leadership positions because I couldn't go down and relieve them with the job that I wanted. And I began to see that, that, that gender differentiation was not only harmful to me because that was a job that I thought was important to my development, but it was pretty harmful to them because they weren't getting leadership development. And I had an extraordinary conversation with a lieutenant as we were on our way to the National Training Center and he's going to go out and be the force that I'm going to be with the op for, you know, fighting against. And he said, without any sort of rancor, as, an, as a lieutenant of MI, he said, you know, ma'am, you're never going to get to learn intel from the ground up the way I am. I mean, I get to start at the battalion level as an assistant, and then I get to be a battalion two, and then I get to be a brigade two. He said, it looks like you're going to have to come into that having skipped quantum physics and going right into building the space shuttle. He said, it's a little unfair to you, and I'm not sure you'll ever be as credible as I am. <laughs> and I'm sort of looking at him saying, I could kill you now, but I'm going to listen. And I said, well, let me give you the corollary. Um, at this point in my career, where you are, you have had a chance to be an assistant S2 and an S2, and that's pretty good for the MI lieutenant. I said, but I, I, am, I would have been on my fourth leadership job heading to company command. So who is, who's being disadvantaged? Because at the end of the day for an officer in the military, you not only need to be good at your specialty, you need to be able to lar run large organizations. And we both sort of looked at each other and said, you know, it's probably not good for either of us. Um, so we fast forward a few years later, the Gulf War is over. I've been in the one division with the bad equipment that didn't get called up and was in Washington during the Gulf War. And after the Gulf War, when Paul was coming in, I think, they were having the discussion about women in the Army and this whole issue of exclusion. They were doing a, a retrospective of what happened in the Gulf War um, and how did that turn out and do we have our policies right. And talking about the pressures of society at the time, uh, there was a little bit of a conservative backlash about women in the military. There was this idea that, you know, the American public is outraged because its daughters were at war. And we finally figured out that there was no front line and 
women were going to be subject to the same sort of hardship and they're all mixed in these units and it's like somebody finally found this out. And so external pressure from outside the military said we really need to study this and, and we need to resolve this contradiction that me, the lieutenant, discovered. Hey, by the way, I wonder if they know we're in these units. And what happened then is they created restrictions, more restrictions for us in 1994. After we came through a war where women served honorably, did everything they were asked to do, served in all these positions, because frankly, commanders had figured out, we're just going for merit and talent. We're not going to worry about gender, because no one's holding us responsible. But they put that combat exclusion law in place. So the very support role that I had as a second lieutenant and reforger with the third ACR, I was now no longer allowed to do that job, even though I had all the gray matter, and we certainly survived my arrival down into that proud unit. And I was a little discouraged. So that was point two where I was thinking, maybe, you know, there's another way for me to realize my potential. But I always had a rule that you shouldn't let one thing uh, drive you out, because maybe by staying that insanity. The comment I made to uh, my division commander when I asked him about, okay, I, I get to be an AV, combat aviation brigade S2, but I'd really like to be an infantry brigade S2. And he said, well, you know, there are rules against that, Mary. And I said, well, they don't make any sense. Uh, and he said, well, I know, because you're very capable, but there are rules against that. I said, but sir, in 2ID where the North Koreans are five minutes away, there's a female brigade S2. A commander's taking a chance on her. Why aren't you willing to take a chance on me? And he said, well, I sort of look at you like I look at my daughter. I don't want you to be in. And I said, whoa. I said, first of all, you're not attractive enough to be my father. <laughs> I said, second of all, do not, do not presume to protect me out of an opportunity that is important to my profession because of your feelings for me. I said, that doesn't help. I said, you know, and my comment to him as a captain was, someday this rule is going to be overturned because you cannot institutionalize prejudice and discrimination. And that's all this is. I am capable of doing that job, just like my sister uh, Chinook pilot is capable of flying an Apache, just like my sister Signalier is capable of being a battalion SIGO, and frankly with more enthusiasm than the poor guys that never get above the battalion level, because they're worn out. So this is going to be overturned. Okay, so fast forward. I, I went to Korea uh, again, ran into the first mentor that said, yeah, there's restrictions, but I'm going to ignore them all. And this was the, the colonel, later general officer, that said, you need to ignore that and just prepare yourself for responsibilities that are going to come. And it was the exception there being attached versus assigned? Uh, that, he, he, he viewed that as temporal. He said, okay. eventually this will go away. And he said, you need to stay focused on the responsibilities that are coming. You have talent, just like many of the other men and women in this unit, and you need to start preparing for it because it's going to come. So and despite the boundaries, you went ahead yeah. and, and pressed forward with trying forward. to work around the rules. So, uh, so uh, yes. Do you think, though, that the sentiment now, even with 10 years of war, our nation, that feels a little bit differently about women and women in combat. So I would be, yeah. I'm, I'm con so he was wanting to protect you back then. So how's the so sentiment I'll, today? So I'll finish that thought. That boss, you know, the first division commander, it was confusing, but that was his generation. Mm -hmm. Two years later, I'm with someone slightly younger who has worked 
men and women, female units came out of the 82nd, had ignored all the gender rules that were in place just to put people where they needed to be, and pushed me into his hardest jobs with the understanding that he had recognized that I had potential. Um, what happened was Bosnia, where again, the 360 environment took place and we didn't have time to work out the gender rules, we just did jobs. And there was a generation of leaders that then went into uh, the wars looking for talent and didn't ask for the gender, but simply put you in places. So there were rules, but those rules were being overlooked. Because they were focusing on talent and talent because management. Because they were focusing on talent. Now, at the battalion and below level, that's still difficult for the commanders because it becomes very obvious. And yet what's showing up attached to them are MI officers and signal officers and signal soldiers. Uh, and so their soldiers are getting used to seeing uh, the female lieutenant who comes down to be their engagement platoon because they need to have women that can interact with the populations in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Which they have been, right, the last yes. 10 years, and so, directly in so, combat. And so what's changed is this generation of male and female service members have declared this is not an issue for us, that this change that, that someone else got involved with 15 or 20 years before, which didn't, wasn't a choice of ours, by the way. This was sort of imposed upon the Top process. down. It's like top-down now. It's recognized that, too, even though the bottoms-up has actually integrated right. well. Uh, so like. I think we're ready. And I think okay. the senior leaders we have today, many of whom, male and female, have sons and daughters in the military right. who have seen the extraordinary performance of the men and women, many of whom, some of whom are with us in the back row back here, of working as teammates, taking on the hardest missions, and whether they're on ships or in Marine Corps, right divisions or army units or in, in some of the most difficult you know, Air Force assignments have not let gender get in the way in, 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 in a way that you know, we've always thought was possible. So the generation of we played soccer together from the start, we've been integrated from the start, that's the generation of so our the culture perhaps, the cultural differences. And our senior leaders have been serviced by phenomenal performance. I mean, she's not going to mention it, but she was she was one of the original J6s in Iraq. Right. And she was one of the original female analysts that made it possible for the rest of the female analysts to come in without a big question mark. And I benefited from that because I was the second female J2 in Iraq for General Petraeus and Odierno. So I wasn't even, it wasn't even unusual. Right. That's where we are today. So we didn't have the discussion for 10 years, not because it wasn't an important discussion, but we were focused on the war. It's an appropriate discussion right now. It is an appropriate thing for us to look at in terms of expanding uh, where women should, should and can be. That combat exclusion law in 1994 didn't make sense to Lieutenant Legere or Captain Legere or General Legere, so I'm happy that I've lived through seeing it right. gone. Um, and I think the militaries, all the services are gonna take a slightly different progressive approach to setting conditions correctly for women so that so, we can be successful. So let's talk about that a little bit, about what they're doing, because uh, they didn't remove all the barriers. I mean, the, the policy did remove some. Uh, there was still some remaining reasons why that didn't get completely removed, such as um, uh, being able to have um, uh, cost prohibitive issues around privacy, um, the issues around the physical uh, requirements, perhaps, of some combat 
you know, special forces types issues, as well as maybe still again, perhaps some safety issues and protecting about special reconnaissance units. So, I don't know, Paula, would you like to comment on this one since you've been involved in a lot of special operations yourself? And yeah, what do we get? We, yeah, what do we get beyond those? These kind of barriers. Yeah, that's a good question. First, for Paul. birthing. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've been there, done that. I mean, I don't know how many tents I've been the only woman sleeping there, and I've, you know, um, I, nothing's happened to me, thank goodness. But um, we've been co-located for quite a, for my entire career of 17 years, and many, you know, probably a few years before that. Um, to do it on a large scale is expensive, so I can understand there's some argument there. But, Maybe um, a one-time expense. Is it something that needs yeah, to be on? I, I tell you what, I spent the last year in Afghanistan as a journalist, and I was in infantry battalions and companies and outposts. No problems. Use the same bathroom, same shower. We just respected the hours. So that's so that one's gone. Um, second, your second point was on physical fitness and, yes. and and those standards. I firmly believe we should have one standard, whether it's Ranger School or even the APFT. Um, I think that if anyone can meet that standard, they should be allowed to enter whatever the, the position is. And there are many men that can't meet ranger school standards or, you know. I've, I, for my entire career, I've maxed the, the Army physical fitness scale on the men's hardest level. It's been a personal goal of mine, just to make a point. <laughs> so, um, and not to say that I have the aptitude, uh, maybe missing other skills, leadership skills, but I think if physical fitness is one of the standards, then there are many women that are qualified to meet those standards. And the same across, applies across the board as far, as far as leadership skills. If you have proven leadership skills um, and acumen, then you should be allowed to do a certain job. And I think we have to be careful not to set a standard that really doesn't apply to the job. And, and that has been the case in the past where the standard has been much more difficult than the job really required. Uh, so I think we have to look at the jobs and set the standards uh, equally um, for anyone who's interested in that job. I also think that the privacy issue is a bit of a blue herring or whatever that saying is, that's kind of really red ridiculous. Hair. Red hair. <laughs> pink. Because, pink hair. Because I don't know if anybody's familiar with the size of a submarine, but they didn't build special facilities for women when they put them on a submarine. They took a two-cent piece of paper that says men on one side and women on the other side. And that's how they separated the facilities. Um, I've been in places where we only had one latrine. And I never had anybody walk in on me. I never walked in on anybody. Uh, there was never any problems with that. You know, you can work it out. So a lot of these things, I think the barriers are excuses. And if we really think through them, there are ways around almost all of them. Um, but I do think it's important that people are conditioned mentally and emotionally for the change. And, and, and a lot of times we have not, in the past, we have not done that well. I think the Navy is excelling in the way they have gone about putting women on submarines. They've taken a senior woman and put, that's already warfare qualified, and put on each submarine where there are at least two, if not three, uh, young ensigns going on board for their first tour of duty. So they have someone they can talk to about, you know, life in a, a combat unit. And I think that's important. Um, we never did that before. 
So, so speaking of that, it sounds like mentorship is a, is a critical component to being successful yeah, for integration. So comments from the panel on how the like, military yeah, is improving I wanna, that. I want to hit a point just because I agree with both of you on you know the, the barriers that you discussed, I think, and I will speak for the Army. We believe all of those things are going to be overcome, that we can overcome them. Um, but it gets to your point. Um, as we introduce women in, in not large numbers, but in, in, in new numbers down at the battalion and below level, we don't exactly know what we don't know at this point. We know some of the logical things that will come up that can be overcome. Uh, but we also need to see where, are the, where is the resistance going to come from, from an attitude perspective. And what education will we use is when we, when we make that wider than the nine, you know, brigade pilot that we're currently focused on, you, you get a good cross-section of what the reaction of the, the men are going to be, what are the concerns that the woman will have that we haven't even thought about. And that then feeds into the education to set conditions so we are successful. And we've clearly all just lived through, you know, the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. Right. And the services asked for a little bit of time to prepare the force because what you have was a policy that was 180 out from the policy that they had all been conditioned for. And I remember the reaction from the, uh, the, the not the public, but many in the press and, and some, you know, from other groups saying, well, you're just stalling. And it was really, no, we're not. We really need to understand we need to educate our force. We need to tell them what attitudes are, we're, let them express their attitudes, and then put it, give them a framework and a context. And so when don't ask, don't tell, actually, you know, that took effect. There were very few, if any, real incidents. And that's the conditioning within the Army, you know, that, and I know the Marine Corps has a couple pilots. The Navy's farther along. The Air Force has less of an integration issue because most of their positions, I think all of their positions with the exception of very few, 95% uh, are all open. The Army's at, I think, 90 when you do National Guard and Reserve. But putting them down in these battalion, brigade and below positions, they're going to focus on a group of nine brigades and make sure they've got people in there at the right levels looking at the second and third order effects that we haven't thought about, the facilities, uh, the, the gender norming in terms of strength for the MOS, those things, those are all issues that we feel like we'll work our way through, uh, but also understanding what is the cultural adjustment and the attitudinal adjustment that our force will now have to make. We may find there's less of an issue because the fact is women have been down there for a long time. Right. Uh, but the senior leadership wants to go slow because we want it to be a non-event as we then open things up. For our Army leadership, this, and I think for the Marines as well, this is the beginning of a continued march toward continued progress to where we see women and men having equal opportunity for the same types of opportunities. As long as women can't serve in certain places, men then take up a disproportionate burden of having to fill those places. So speaking of which, so earlier this week, General McChrystal talked about talent and talent management. He said out of the high school students that the military is trying to recruit, a third don't even graduate. A third aren't even qualified. And a third that's left, now if you look at that, that's the target population. But if we're looking for the best talent, and women are out there, and women of course is a population, 50, 51%. So what is the military doing to be increased that 15% if there are gonna be more positions open, and to bring in that talent. So this is like a talent management um, issue. So I'd open up for the panel to, to comment on, should we be increasing those and set higher targets? Mm -hmm. I think if you look at um, how we do our recruiting, 
um, I don't have a lot of visibility on this, but just taking a stab. Um, we're not, I don't, we don't have that wonderful motto, be all you can be anymore. It's this army of one, <laughs> maybe that fits this generation better. But army strong. Army strong, whatever army it is strong. now. Um, but mm, I personally want to be a female warrior. I want to fight. I like, I don't, you know, stuck, snuck in sniper school and want to kick down doors. I think that's fun. Um, not all women want to do that, and that's okay. But are we, are we marketing to women to show them what, amazing opportunities are available, whether it's tactical and, and more of a combat role or some of the um, positions that will deal with emerging threats like cybersecurity, which is really gender neutral um, and very important. And you know, we have a great role model here who's, who's reached the top in that field. So maybe some of our marketing um, could be changed. Well, I also think that that's not just a gender issue. I think that's a national issue that that those are the statistics of what our high school population is. And I think that one of the things that the military can do positive is to increase the number of junior ROTC units that are out there. I think, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to visit many high schools uh, that were in poor areas, but they had a very strong uh, ROTC unit that the kids just, they fought to get in. They, they had many more applicants than the unit could take. Um, and all of those kids didn't necessarily want a career in the military. But they all, I think, probably came out of high school a better person than if they hadn't been part of the ROTC unit. They learned a lot of skills. They spent their time on the drill team. Uh, they learned leadership. Um, and it was, I think, from my experience and the interaction I've had with those units, a great experience for all of them. And so I think that's one of the things that the military could really do to help the school system in the United States is to try and increase those. And I think the military needs to start thinking about recruiting, not on college campuses, but in high schools and grade schools. I don't think going to a grade school is, is uh, that they're too young. You need to start them thinking about what is it you want to do. You know, unfortunately, we're not all a, a, as aggressive as Mary, and we can't think when we're in third grade what we want to do <laughs> when we're in college, or you know that we're actually going to take down a third world country one day. Run one, and, not take and, it down. Oh, well, <laughs> there's a difference. See, right? I should say take it down because I'm. That's a great. But Mary, I will go with you if okay. you need help. Uh, uh, My secretary so I think, of communications. You know, so I think having that influence in our, our grade schools is an important thing. And I think that's how you start attacking some of the issues with not having enough qualified folks, whether it's men or women. Yeah, I, and having, just to highlight on that, just to pick up on that point, I agree. I, I think I do sometimes watch the great ads that we have, particularly around the time of the Army, Navy, Army, Air Force game, and any time the Marines are anywhere, there's great ads. And, and, I, and I do look that at times we have forgotten about half the population, and I'm thinking, okay, note to self, senior officer might want to point out there, a woman <laughs> in the military here. Uh, but junior ROTC, you know, teachers have told us, and I've been involved with this forever, this is the one club that every kid in high school can join and not have any particular aptitude other than they want to belong to something. And they say the subliminal lessons of a 26-year-old sergeant coming in, talking to him about fitness, paying attention, staying in school, saying, hey, look, we don't know if the military is your thing, but you got to at least graduate from high school because otherwise we can't even talk to you. 
we don't have a hard sell message. We have some obvious opportunities to engage with the youth and, and help the teachers. And, may, which and is, maybe be part of this um, movement of right. service that and we've we been have, talking about all week long. We have a great, that's where it can start. You've covered up your name tag, but I've met Jessica, who mm -hmm. mentors you know, college women, and has asked, you know, done some outreach to say, well, could you bring some people in to talk to my college woman about careers in the military, just careers in public service, and do we make that bridge? Right. So I think we start earlier. We certainly have a special mission because women, you know, um, are gonna are gonna need to see the opportunities because what they see on television is the largely male military experience. Um, to make sure that they know there's a place for them as well, and that they they're gonna succeed as well, uh, and whether they stay with us forever because they don't have the imagination to get out, uh, or they just stay for a short period of time, but always are still serving us you exactly, know, in, in, exactly. in the military, but still serving. Um, it'll have a profound effect on our country to have that sort of civicness. I mean, Wonderful. we have great examples back here of some great veterans who we're all a lot older to, but are clearly committed to helping our, our nation. Uh, and we're very Paul, proud of did them. you have a comment that you wanted to yeah, make as I mean, well? Yeah, um, the Office of Economic Manpower Analysis based at West Point um, has done some pretty deep dives on talent management. But going beyond recruiting in the first you know, swath of folks, there, there are many stages of talent management. Sure, retention um, especially. Retention, <laughs> calling. I mean, we don't want to keep some of the bottom dwellers around. And sure. about three years ago, there was a 97% promotion rate to major. And I got promoted before that, <laughs> just for the record. It was 94%, but she's 94? actually okay. she's the top two. She's, she's actually in the one for top 1% anyway. But. Um, culling, so we, I think we need to do a better job of that. And, and then capability management. So part of the reason I got out, as I said, was I just didn't feel like I was being used to, my, you know, to the extent I, I could. And maybe I was being a snob or something. I don't know. There are certain jobs you need to do, and I understand that, and I tried. But um, you have to have job satisfaction as well. And choice. And choice and feel like there's opportunities. You know, I think about, I don't have any daughters, but would I want them to join the military or to join an organization they can never be the head of? Sharing the same kind of leadership philosophy, like maybe all you can be. So um, I think talent management in includes those other factors, and, and then retention would be the last one. But and, and I think mentorship for women, because it's largely male, it's helping our males. And we talk a lot about this at every level of leadership and all the services do. Uh, we tend to mentor people that look like us because we're most comfortable having had the same experiences. And so I often challenge my male peers to say, okay, watch that, both from a gender and a, and a, and a demographic or racial perspective, watch that. So that you, when you think about the people you're mentoring, and it, it you know, could be as wide as this, that, that you're reaching out to everybody. And so for a person, a young person like Paula, or a young woman like Paula who's got incredible talent. What she needed was a mentor that made sure she was constantly pressed into positions that overwhelmed her. And I was lucky enough in that real critical period when I was thinking, eh, I don't know if I'm gonna stay because I'm not sure, to find a male boss that said, I'm gonna manage this from now on and you are gonna be over your head for the rest of your career because I'm gonna mm -hmm. keep pushing you into jobs to prepare you for the third world country or whatever leadership job the Army's lucky enough to select you for. We have to recognize our top talent. We've got to recognize it might, you know, I always used to tell the soldiers, I said, hey look, Alexander the Great ruled the world at 18. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> because every one of them moves at their own pace and I think, 
<laughs> well, yeah, and somebody said, family connections, you know, all the soldiers <laughs> have an answer. I said, but let's just think about getting to PT on time then. You know, let's put this in perspective. But talent management clearly is important, yes. not just for the military, but for industry and for academia. Uh, so with that, maybe we pause a little bit and then ask if our audience has any questions from our panelists. Yes. First of all, thank you all for your service. And thank you everybody in the room who has served or continues to serve. Um, I really appreciate the window, the insight that you gave us into how the military has adapted and, and um, really grown to um, include women. And I'm wondering what maybe the influence of women has been on the military in other ways, not gender specific, but how has, has the inclusion of women influenced the military? Well, I think, you know, uh, most definitely it's influenced the military. I think it's made us better. Of course, you know, I would say that my husband might disagree with me in certain ways, uh, and we do disagree a lot about this issue. Uh, but um, I really think if you, a lot of units, once women were integrated, the unit performance went up, um, the cohesion went up, the morale went up, um, the respect for individuals went up, and so I think you can document the improvement in the force overall. Now, were there issues? Yeah, there were a lot of issues. Were there bad things that happened? Yeah, bad things have happened. But I think overall, the impact has been very positive uh, and that it will continue to be positive as we continue to open more and more opportunities to women. I don't think you can make, some people try to make the argument that women are more inclusive and you know, we're more oriented towards peace because I don't know that that has been proven statistically. Um, so if you're looking for that, can't, can't necessarily give it. I'll give one example of where I think women have been very effective in a role that men can't serve in. And it's, um, and uh, General Leger re referred to it, but the female engagement teams, or maybe right, you were mentioning as well, and cultural support teams. So the Marines started this initiative, kudos to them. And it's funny because the Marines have the lowest percentage of women, 6%, 20% Air Force, 15 Navy, 15 Army, um, active duty. And yet they recognize that why the Marines led the way? Because of leadership at the tactical level. A young man. That's why they. No, he, he, he's asking why there's fewer women in the, in the Marine Corps. Um, they started this type of cultural support team. And they're the first to integrate women. <laughs> Are you a Marine? Yes. Oh, okay. still serving. I don't know. I think the Marine core has a different culture and a different looks at women a little differently. That's, that's been my experience around um, some Marines, but I, I'm not a Marine, so. Uh, can we just, since we're on it, <laughs> Marines are the first branch to actually put women in combat roles. And they're the first to do the pilot programs right now going on um, integrating women into the infantry. So kudos to them. But in this case in Afghanistan, um, a former Wall Street Journal reporter decided he wanted to uh, go through OCS and go serve in Afghanistan. And he was placed in an infantry unit but he saw that we were missing out on this, this ability to engage with 50% of the population in Afghanistan. And if it's all about winning hearts and minds and you don't engage a significant portion of the population, you're missing something. Um, not to mention that women may be coaching their children not to get involved in terrorism, not to become a $10 a day Taliban or whatever it is. So um, it, was, it was tactical level leadership. And then General McChrystal, who recognized a good 
practice that was coming from the bottom up um, and encouraged it, um, but the Marines really led the way in institutionalizing it. By that I mean the, the FETs um, previously were just pulling women who were mechanics or cooks or intel officer and she wanted to do this. And they weren't getting the same training, so we weren't setting them up for success, but they succeeded anyhow. Now um, that's been institutionalized with the Marines and Special Operations Command under Admiral Olson has institutionalized a program for um, cultural support teams and they work in support of SF um, and, and actually Rangers and Delta Force. So they're attached to these very highly, um, you know, high speed. Not assigned, they're attached. Uh, yes, yeah. So we've, we've gotten around it. Um, and they're doing halo insertions. They're rucking in 10 kilometers with a pretty heavy pack on their back and they're going on night raids. They may not be doing the tactical, you know, kicking down the door. And we don't do that anyhow. We knock and give them a chance <laughs> to come up. Um, but then they're coordinating off women and children and gleaning information. Um, not interrogating or anything like that, um, and they're not there for intelligence purposes, but we've trained them to do tactical exploitation, which is so important on the battlefield. Um, so I think that's one way that, that women have influenced the military, and thankfully male leaders, because we can't do it alone, have recognized we, we, we need women in those and roles. And so think of the operational impacts to answer your question, but also uh, the confidence that we're building now with the young men who come in who have said, I'm in an all-male unit, but I, I keep seeing these women show up and they appear to be very competent. In the Army, that's where the, for the conventional force, the attitude started to change. And I can remember, you know, in, in 1998, and there's a great ca retired captain back here who was reliving first cab, you know, NTC rotations, and a commander coming up to me in 06 saying, I need three of your best intel officers. Here's the names I need for my brigade and my battalion combat teams. And they were all women. And, and it didn't even occur to him to make a point about it. He just said, I've looked around the other brigades. These are the ones that I want. Um, so I think the presence of these teams is having a profound impact on the Marine Corps, too, in, in, in preparing them for change that may come. It has certainly prepared the Army, which is, is large, and we sometimes, you know, you know, told slow, but not, that it's going to be okay, and we're going to work our way through it. So, I, and as to the, the, the question, you know, our, our chief uh, the other day sat back, uh, looked out on his staff, the chief of staff of the Army, uh, in the room, uh, several, uh, he's number two, an African-American four-star general, uh, not remarkable. There were four female general officers, including uh, two three-stars in this sea of uh, otherwise uh, white males. And he, he made the comment, he said, you know, I, I know I shouldn't have to say this, but I, I'm glad it's important that we understand the importance of diversity. I know we all feel that because we bring, all of us bring different points of view. All of us solve problems slightly differently. And I think it helps all of our creative thinking if we've got those different um, perspectives coming in. And our male leadership at this point recognizes this. Our female leadership certainly celebrates it. And we, we look to ensure that we continue to have that influence at every echelon. Wonderful. Other questions from the audience? Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, my question regards the gap between, um, or the lag between public policy change and the in-theater realities that happen at combat. <clears throat> I think it was very clear to the American public during both occupations in Iraq and Afghanistan that women were serving on a reconfigured front, and yet the policy lag was so remarkably profound. So what further administrative or policy changes would you like to see to facilitate um, the involvement of women? I actually think that it's important. So I believe we have to catch the policy up. 
but I don't fault Congress in the middle of the war from drawing our leaders into the large, what sometimes becomes an acrimonious political debate, often debated without any input from us. In other words, it's, it's about us, but it's occurring with agendas that are occurring over our heads. And frankly, during this, two, this decade of conflict, um, we have resisted being drawn into the discussions uh, and been satisfied that when the time came and we could get a break, then, then we can have a good discussion about it. Um, so I think we're getting, I mean, it, we, we certainly have gotten congressional support for the repeal of this. Uh, we have obligations to go back to Congress to report on progress and how things are going. Uh, I think they, our, our chiefs and our chairman, our chairman has said himself, this is not only the right thing and the necessary thing to do, but it's personal to me to see this through. It's going to be part of his legacy. Uh, so the, the military's lined up for this. I think Congress is lined up for it. In the case of the American public, I think they're behind us as well, and the American soldiers are behind it, American service members are behind us as well. But having the discussion in the middle of Fallujah, in the middle of the surge, uh, in distracting our commanders and our men and women who would be called back to testify, and we get embroiled in the debate on the wars and things like that, probably not the best time. So I'm okay with when we're doing it, and I think allowing something sometimes to occur naturally. Uh, it's let us show you that it can be done so you can have confidence. Now clearly there are incidents in our military where when President Truman said, we are going to, you know, we're going to end segregation, uh, he made a decision and made it happen in the military and the rest of the country then followed for the next few decades until we got a civil rights, you know, law. Um, this is a little bit different, but I, I don't think you should worry too much about this specific issue. I think the worst thing that would have happened is if we got a politicized debate in the middle of the wars where we start turning against each other because we, you know, we, we've got different things to focus on. It wasn't the right time. It is now. So it sounds like we're on track, it looks like, for it. So one more question I think we've got. Over here. One more question. She wanted to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to come back to that, the rape issue, though, because we haven't talked about that. So after a question, if we can save a minute for that. I was going to ask a question. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, mine might be totally off, but when you're talking about the um, recruiting and retaining talented female officers, it seems to me that one of the components that's there is family. All of you have a family. You chose to stay at, get out because it wasn't challenging. But it seems that at some point, the way the, the career paths progress is a very straight track. And if you should happen to have a family at some point, you would get off track. And that would seem to me that it would be a problem. Is that, can you address that in some way? Well, I think we've all had different experiences. Um, I'll highlight my best friend who was promoted below the zone to lieutenant colonel and just took battalion command. And I want to put her on your radar. Um, <laughs> she's fantastic. Yeah. And she name. has a stay-at-home husband. She has four children, and she's been deployed to twice to Bosnia, um, twice to Afghanistan, and this last year she was part of Transcom movement to take all our troops out of Iraq, so she's in Kuwait and all over the Middle East for quite a while. And she's not exactly going to have an easy lifestyle now as a battalion commander. Her husband is totally supportive. That's an unusual model. Um, 
my husband would love to be a stay-at-home surfer dad, but he also loves being a physician, and so we, we fight. We have that tension. That exists inside the military and outside the military. Um, but I think what you find is the military is trying, I think, is there, I think in 2009 there was some pilot case to have these on-ramp, off-ramps where men and women, I believe, could take a little time off and come back. I don't think it ever really well, materialized. Oh, shoot. The Navy has done it. The yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Navy has done it very successfully, and, you know, they focused on the fact that we do have a very uh, strict career path and that if you want to have family, that just wasn't built in. So the Navy has done that for men and women. So you can take a sabbatical to have a child. If you're a man, you can take the sabbatical to support uh, and your wife can continue to serve after the child is born. So um, it started out as a very small pilot program, and um, I think in 08 is when they first started it, and it has continued to grow. Uh, and uh, they're trying to do everything they can to make it possible for a woman to stay in for an entire career, but also to have a family if that's what. Uh, she wants. I mean, in theory, it sounds good because it's working practically. If you take, if someone opts for the sidetrack, do they come back and get back at the same? Can well, they that, that's the same way? that's one of the. There are some, you know, it, it's not like okay, I decide today, you know, in the middle of my department head tour that I want to do this. So there are some constraints, but the issue is having them to come back so they don't lose their competitive promotion status and that they don't have to repeat. So that's been one of the challenges, is how do you reintegrate them at that same level, even though they've been gone a year? But I will, I, if I can speak from my personal experience, I think the reserves are beautiful for that reason, because I um, was recalled three times, which was about a total of five years, and then my husband said, okay, choose. <laughs> so I went into inactive ready reserve, we had kids, went to grad school, did my correspondence work, so I stayed active and got reserve retirement points, and just now, Six years later, I haven't had a report card in that time, but I'm eligible for promotion to lieutenant colonel. Now, I won't get a battalion command in active duty. I probably won't you know, be a general officer. Um, but that's not why I do it. I do it because I want to serve. Something should happen to my husband. I have a fallback profession, um, and it's enriching. I have a top secret security clearance. I'm still in the mix, but I'm raising my two children, and there isn't a gap in my CV. So I think it's a beautiful model for, for the military, um, and it hasn't been that hard for me to uphold. In the Army, unfortunately, having really, I think the Army Marines, we've had, we've, we've been trying to get beyond the one-to-one -one rotations in Afghanistan and Iraq, so it may be something that we'll be able to look at uh, when we can bring the, home, the force home and rest it a bit. Uh, but certainly we are concerned um, about both of our, both our men and women when they reach that point where they're beginning to make that professional decision. Uh, can we find ways to accommodate uh, the young family and, and the careers. Uh, we don't have the off-ramp issue or, or all option at this point in the active force. Again, uh, our op-tempo with Afghanistan is still uh, fully engaged. It wouldn't allow it at this point, but I think in the future we'll see whether that experiment works for us. Looks like we have time for, I think, one more question. Do we have any questions? Yes, well, I was going to ask the question, um, and I've had a conversation with Andy on this topic. The, the, um, Know, the statistics in civilian society about date rape and sexual abuse, sexual harassment are pretty troubling. It's been my impression, talking with Angie, that the military's kind of gotten a handle on this, and that that is. Um, but is that true? And, and would you has a handle? 
yeah. has a better handle than. But they have a program that they recognize it. Right. Um, yeah. I think just what this week, um, the documentary Invisible War um, was released, uh, which is as you know, sort of staggering testimonies. The question is, you know, what can the military be doing to protect not just men but women? Right. By the way, not women but men as well. Um, when it comes to sexual assault right. and um, sexual harassment. So if you have one incident in a culture that that celebrates and re requires teamwork and trust, if you have one incident where a uh, service member is victimized by another service member, um, it's it's a it's one thing if it's it's not one thing if it's a casual friend, but when you're on a team and, and that attack comes from that teammate. It's just devastating. And so we're never going to be complacent about this until we eradicate it within the force. We're not there yet. Um, and it doesn't have to, it's not really a woman's issue. It's a, it's a, it's a force issue in that it's, it's male soldiers, low incidence and females. Low, low incidence in the population of the two million who serve, but if it's one incident, it's too many. And the things that we're learning, and I think this documentary, as painful as it is, which for those who haven't seen it, um, talks about the, the double victimization of the, 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 the young person that has experienced the assault and then doesn't find justice through our UCMJ process. Um, because, frankly, in many cases, our, our, our commanders at that lower level are too inexperienced to understand the magnitude of what's being happened or applying in some cases the UCMJ rules of evidence and everything that applies and not dealing with the victim and that the first response of taking care of that, that victim's psychological needs. Um, I've seen the reaction in the Pentagon. I've seen the reaction in the services to that documentary. It's we're getting the right response, which is, no, this isn't going to happen inside our force. So our education, we're proud of it. We have programs. We thought we had it, but our, our, they aren't sharp enough. I do think that the decision that the Department of Defense has made across the service is to remove the issue of dealing with the case from a company-grade officer who is perfectly capable of dealing with a soldier who fails to repair, doesn't show up for, is, is, is missing from formation or has talked back to his sergeant or has failed to, you know, failed in some way from a disciplinary action. At the company-grade level, we have the experience to deal with it, but the Department of Defense has said, when it is a case involving assault of a soldier, that is going to be elevated to an 06 level. So somebody at the level of experience with 20 to 25 years of life experience who can be looking after the victim, ensuring all the respect to the, the UCMJ is played, but handling that in the way it needs to be handled. We owe that to those women who were brave enough to participate in that do documentary. Um, so I think in one of those cases where you, you never like to see that you never like to see that about your institution. The thing that I have faith in the military is when we decide that we have had enough of the problem, we will kill this until it's done. And there is a sense of outrage amongst men and women in the military at all levels that we're still talking about this. We thought we had it. We don't until we take care of our victims and they trust the system to report. Um, and then we, as somebody said in the interviews, you up-armor both our men and women to look out for each other. That's the simple message that we look out for each other, that we look out for each other, we intervene, we ensure we're doing all the things that we do when we send our kids off to college and we're worried about that, you know, that 
that familiar experience, not the violent experience, but the familiar experience that sometimes evolves between young men and women. That's not, we're worried about all that, but most importantly, we've got to sharpen our, the education and, and the response that we have when we have a victim and put it at the exact right level of accountability, deal with the, deal with the victim in the most sensitive way possible, deal with the perpetrator as a criminal who has violated the trust that has been created inside the organization um, and don't shy away from it until we're done. And so I, I, I really think what I sensed in the Pentagon last week when that film was released was nobody was, no one was looking away. You had general officers shutting down their offices last week to watch the movies together to say, what are we missing? What is our policy missing? Just for some, I was just going to get a little context for the rest of you. Um, I think 130 some women have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. 800 have come back with very physical, um, visible wounds, amputation, and so forth. Um, but 19,000 women this year have reported rape, and they think that's only one third of the number. So women are more likely to be raped in the barracks than killed on the front lines. That's a problem, not just for the woman, but for unit effectiveness. Right. Right. What's the website? You said that if the, if people want to watch that. I the actually happen to have the documentary with me. I'm friendly with the producers, and I had spoken with someone at the institute actually a couple of weeks ago, trying to see if it could be shown somewhere somehow. And because it's such a good program, I'm still trying to figure it out. Actually, I haven't gotten there that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, InvisibleWarMovies.com. You can go on the site. You can see uh, a clip. I think it's worth trying to see the whole film if you want to give me uh, your card when I see where else. There have been a lot of grassroots screenings. I came into this, I did a screening for them in New York and uh, it just has really gotten to me. I'm happy to get this out to as many people as possible because it's something that really yeah. does need to be done. Yeah. You can actually YouTube it as a visible war. It's on YouTube. Yeah. But I do think one of the things that's important is that historically, whenever the military has shown the light on a problem or been shown a problem and they put a light on it, and I think they are putting a light on this, they fixed it. And I think, I think, you know, we have several instances where, you know, between drugs and other issues that the military has really led the way for society in a lot of ways. And uh, I can tell you from my experience and just what I've seen in articles and in the early bird and in the, and in the um, articles that are put together for the CNO to read every morning, that that is being focused on and that they are taking action. They, they're shutting down commands and having stand downs and talking about this. And that's the only way that it's going to be resolved because is to have it out right. in the open to discuss it and figure out how are we going to get beyond it? Well, I want to thank our panelists. I'd like to thank the audience. Thank you for coming. And I, and I, next time somebody asks you if you know anybody in the military, you all know at least three, four people now that, that have served in the military.